This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Well, it's a real privilege to be here and thanks for coming and being willing to listen for a while, particularly if you're not a Christian and you're just exploring the Christian faith. You're super welcome. I love meeting other visitors, so come say hi afterwards and feel free to ask some questions. I'll stick around after the service. Uh, Tonight's, uh, this morning's title is, uh, Was Jesus the Original Walking Dead? Uh, So if you're a note taker, you can put that down there. And if you've brought your Bibles, if you're a Christian, then uh, turn and open in there to John chapter 11. We'll be reading a little bit from there in a second. But while you're turning there... Uh, as I've been sharing, I've got a love for learning now. I like thinking and, and reading and writing, and I've become a bit of a stickler when it comes to punctuation. Punctuation can really make a difference, right? And uh, a couple of years ago, I came across this Huffington Post article on seven times that punctuation literally meant the difference between life and death. And I wanted to share with you a couple of my favorites that were here. The first one's three words, let's eat grandma. Now, here the difference between a nice family meal and your nice family becoming the meal is simply the presence or absence of a comma. Or take this one. This one might be a little bit more controversial. Four words. Start clubbing baby seals. Now, again, the entire meaning of that statement completely changes on the presence or absence of a comma. Either I'm commanding an unfair thinkable act of animal cruelty for which I should be imprisoned, or I'm just encouraging blubbery cuteness to show off their dance moves on the disco floor. Punctuation can literally mean the difference between life and death. But what about death itself? You see, this is the reality that we kind of try and spend our whole lives pretending doesn't happen. We try and stave it off by using skin creams and diets and exercise regimes. It's the thing that we try and rename so it becomes less confronting, passing away or moving on or going to a better place. So what are we to think about death? Because it's something that will eventually fill all of us with grief for the ones that we lose or the thing that will eventually take us from this world. And I kind of find it crazy that people don't talk more about death, that we don't live in light of that impending reality. Is death a comma or is death a full stop? Now, a few years ago, the image on the screen is of the day that we lowered my wife's granddad uh, into the ground. This was the first uh, in my wife's family who who died. All my grandparents are already dead, but it was her first person in her entire life to die, and it was an incredibly sad day for the family. Everyone was grieving. They missed him. They loved him. And what do we believe then about granddad right now? Is he, according to the atheist or the humanist story, now just gone? some kind of fertilizer for the ground, uh, re-giving back into the circle of life to contribute his atoms and nutrients to the ground? Is he just a shadow who lives on in the achievements that he made or in the memories of the people he left behind, those memories that will one day themselves disappear from the face of the earth? Is death just a natural part of life? Is it just a full stop? Should we accept this? Or... Is death, as it seems to feel to us so intuitively, an unnatural enemy? 
something that's gone wrong? And maybe can death be reversed? Because in the story of the Bible, here in John chapter 11, it's precisely in this sort of situation of a grieving family that Jesus speaks into this reality of whether death is a comma or whether it's a full stop. And he says here in John 11, verses 25 to 26, speaking to the grieving sisters of his friend Lazarus, these are the words that he uses. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? The resurrection, the question of whether or not Jesus rose from the dead, is the hinge of Christianity. Jesus said the proof of his identity, the proof of his claim to be God, the proof of whether he really holds the power over life and death is wrapped up in whether or not after his own death for our sin, he himself would stand up, would rise from the grave. The resurrection is at the very center of the Christian story. And this question of do we believe that 2,000 years ago Jesus really rose from the dead is something that we all have to wrestle with. Uh, Roughly four years ago, my wife and I, we traveled through Israel on our way back from England, and we found ourselves at a location just outside the old city of Jerusalem. It's called the Garden Tomb. Now, this was a site that was discovered in in the middle of the 19th century, the 1800s, by a German theologian. And it seems to be, by all accounts, the strongest candidate for the actual empty tomb of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, the garden in which it's located, it boasts these ancient tombs and olive presses that have been dated right back to the first century AD. And and this garden, it's located right next to a sheer cliff face, and into that cliff face is carved, or just through natural formation, what looks like a skull, the skull of a human head. And if you're familiar with the gospel stories, it says that when Jesus was crucified, he was taken out to a hill called Calvary, or in the Aramaic, Golgotha, which is the place of the skull. And in this garden, in this rock face, there's this one tomb that they've uncovered with the picture on the screen. And this tomb has all of the markers for the exact tomb that's described within the gospel stories, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Now, whether this is the actual tomb is actually irrelevant to my point. But it was standing here in this tranquil garden, looking at a garden tomb, that I was actually forced to wrestle with this question for myself. What do I think really happened here? What do I really think about the claim that Jesus rose from the dead? And coming to that sort of question, I think it's healthy that we acknowledge that there are a couple of key barriers that everyone, particularly growing up in a secular age, have in addressing this question. The first of these barriers is what I've come to call the volitional barrier, and it's exploring the question of, do I really want it to be true? Am I okay with Christianity being true? Because we might pretend that all of our beliefs, they're based on evidence and logic and argument and reason, but the truth is, And evidence bears this out, that so many of our thoughts actually just won't follow our feelings. We choose what our heart most wants to do, and then we use our mind, our reason, to justify that choice. And for many people, 
they reject the resurrection of Jesus, not because they've explored the historical evidence and find that it's bogus and untrustworthy, but because a priori, before the fact, they see this as being a threat to their own freedom. Take Aldous Huxley, for instance, an author, one of the most famous atheists of the last century, and in his book, Ends and Means, he describes the real reason, he's very honest, as to why he rejects belief in God. He said he didn't want it to be true because Christian morality stood in the way of his sexual freedom. And because he wanted to be free to pursue his desires, he writes that I had no problem coming up with reasons to justify jettisoning that view of reality where God exists. If you see what he said, he said, it's not reasons or argument or evidence that led me to reject God. It's that I didn't want it to be true, and so I had no problem finding reasons to justify my skepticism. Or take a more modern parallel. This guy's a fascinating author, if you want to go and read him. Uh, The professor of philosophy and law at New York University is a guy named Thomas Nagel. wrote a brilliant book exploring the philosophy of mind and consciousness called, um, uh, uh, what is it, Um, Mind and Cosmos. Brilliant piece. But a couple of decades ago, in his book, The Last Word, he made this stunning confession. He said, I want atheism to be true. And I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people that I know are religious believers. But I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. But I wonder what kind of universe Thomas Nagel's actually imagining. What kind of universe actually sounds so bad? What picture of God does Huxley and Nagel have in their mind? Because I don't think that picture of God looks anything like Jesus of Nazareth. Because they seem to see the commands of God in the Bible as being these arbitrary statements from some cold and distant dictator, some kind of cosmic killjoy who just wants to stamp out you having fun here on planet Earth and waiting for you to slip up just so he can step in and judge you. But that's not the God of the Bible, the God we see perfectly revealed in Jesus. He's nothing like this. See, rather than being some cosmic killjoy, the God of the Bible is described as a loving heavenly father whose commands to us, they just reflect a moral reality that when we trust him and walk in these commands, they actually result in our good, in our flourishing, but where we ignore him and try and define good and evil on our own terms, we end up just becoming hurt by bumping into this moral reality. It's impossible for me to break the laws of gravity. I only prove the laws of gravity and end up getting broken in the process. Where I to jump off the top of this building, I can't break the law of gravity. Gravity breaks me. And so when we start to break the laws of God, we get broken by them in the process. And this is what our Heavenly Father wishes for people to avoid. He doesn't stand there seeking to destroy us. His heart, his hope, his life mission is to rescue us. And the God of the Bible, he is a God who will deal with evil because a loving God will stamp out evil because he can't allow it to continue. But he's also a God that rather than stamping us out, the one who contribute to evil, instead he was willing to suffer the agony of crucifixion to pay the penalty for our evil so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. Now, if this is true, if this God exists as proved by Jesus' resurrection, then isn't that good news? Wouldn't you really want that to be true? 
But beyond this volitional barrier and whether or not we're willing to accept a threat or an imposition to our own ordering of life, I think the second and maybe key barrier is what I call the problem of miracles. And this is more of an intellectual barrier of growing up in the cultural milieu that we have, a skeptical and secular age that stands in the shadow of the Enlightenment and thinkers like David Hume, the Scottish philosopher. Statements like this, miracles are incompatible with a scientific worldview. Or that the ancients only believed in miracles. The characters in the Bible believed them because they were pre-scientific ignoramuses. They didn't know how the universe really worked. Or that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. These are modern mantras, but the problem is none of them are true. You see, miracles are perfectly compatible with a scientific worldview. Science merely describes what normally happens. We observe phenomena repeatedly, and so we're able to discern a a pattern or a law in nature. But do the existence of these natural laws actually preclude miracles? Take a cool example that C.S. Lewis uses in his book on miracles. It's a great read if you want. He says, pull out your wallet, and I won't make you do it, I'll do it. Uh, Take a $10 note in your hand. Let's say at the end of tonight, I took a $10 note, I opened my bedside table, I put it in the drawer, I closed the drawer, and then I went to sleep. Woke up the next day, went about my business. And the next night before bed again, I take another $10 note, open the drawer, put it in the drawer, close the drawer, go to sleep. Now, if I wake up in the morning and open my drawer to find that there's only $5 now in there rather than 20, what do I conclude? That the laws of arithmetic have been broken? No. Laws of Australia have been broken. Someone broke into my room while I was sleeping, opened it up, and took $15 from there. In my experience with toddlers, it was probably Josiah. Uh, You see, the fact that we understand natural law, recognize what normally happens, does nothing to preclude an agent from the outside intervening to stop what normally happens. The whole question of whether miracles are possible has nothing to do with the laws of nature. It has everything to do with whether we believe that this universe is a closed system, it's just matter and there's nothing more, or whether this universe has a God who stands outside of it, a supernatural being who is able to put his hand in the drawer, so to speak, to intervene in the normal operation of what happens. Because to believe in a God who does miracles doesn't mean that you jettison science. Far from it. You need the study of nature to be able to discern when this God is intervening in those miraculous cases. Otherwise, it's not a miracle. It's not a sign. It doesn't reveal anything. Unless you know what normally happens, you'd never be able to identify when someone, something extraordinary is happening. And that's actually precisely how we can tell that the characters in the Bible, the people of history, that they're not pre-scientific ignoramuses blindly believing claims that a miracle's happened. They're very familiar with the way that things normally happen. Uh, Take Mary, for instance, the mother of Jesus in Luke's gospel. In there, we read how this virgin teenager gets visited by the angel Gabriel, and he says, you're gonna have a baby. Now, she doesn't blindly say, okay, that's fine. She's very familiar with the birds and the bees. She's studied the science of reproduction. And so she asks the obvious biological question. How will this be? For I am a virgin. She knows what's necessary to make that happen. And rather than just asking her to believe on blind faith that it's going to happen, the angel actually points her to evidence. The evidence of her 
older cousin, Elizabeth, who's been barren her whole life, now an elderly who all of a sudden has fallen miraculously pregnant with John the baptizer, Jesus' cousin. So I want to speak then quickly to this final element that is the mantra of new atheism, this idea that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Because whilst it sounds good on the surface, there's a ton of problems with it. For one, I don't understand why we apply the same adjective of the kind of claim then to the kind of evidence that we require. If we require extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, would that mean that hilarious claims require hilarious evidence? Or even more ridiculously, that stupid claims require stupid evidence? Doesn't seem to make sense. And what would actually count as extraordinary evidence? If by an extraordinary claim you mean supernatural claims, then wouldn't you also be asking for supernatural evidence to be able to prove that claim? And if you're asking for supernatural evidence, isn't that itself then just another thing that in itself is an extraordinary claim for which you'd require more extraordinary evidence? And you get stuck in this endless cycle of never feeling satisfied? And who's to say what really counts as being extraordinary claim? I mean, after all, when you think about it, the claim that the incomprehensibly large scale of our universe once was forced down into something the size smaller then what we can measure as an atom compacted to that, well, that actually seems like a relatively extraordinary claim. But we don't require extraordinary evidence for the Big Bang. We just require normal evidence, sufficient evidence, the kind of cosmological evidence that you would expect that kind of event to leave behind. So it seems to me the claim that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence isn't really an honest invitation by skeptics to explore whether or not a miracle really happened. It's just a shield to keep them at bay. For no matter how much evidence someone who believes in God or believes in miracles offers, they've always reserved the right to either reject it out of hand as not extraordinary enough or not enough per se. So I think it's, it's a better way to approach all claims to just say that all claims require evidence, extraordinary or not. And if that's the case, what kind of evidence would we expect the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth to leave for us to discover? Oh, we're talking about an event 2,000 years ago. They didn't have recording 4K quality of iPhones of literally this body reanimating and popping up into the sky. And we don't have modern medical records of an echocardiogram or an EEG to explore heart or brain patterns. So what do we have and what should we expect? Now, you might be tempted to think that talk of the resurrection of Jesus, of this miracle, it's just theological speak, religious language. It's got no real anchor in reality. But the truth is that you couldn't be farther from reality. And what I want to do this morning is actually give you a skeptical reason why I think you can trust that the resurrection of Jesus really happened. I don't expect anyone here to believe that the Bible is the Word of God, that it's inspired of God. I don't even expect you to come in with the mentality that the gospel stories about Jesus are completely reliable, that I'm just trusting them blindly. Come in with as skeptical eyes as you want to, because what I want to do is give this morning what's called in history a minimal facts approach to the resurrection of Jesus. I want to whittle down out of all of the claims surrounding the resurrection of Jesus what we can be certain about happened, historically speaking, using all the critical tools of historians to, to establish this as happening beyond reasonable doubt. 
And out of the litany of reported facts in the gospel stories and the other ancient texts about the resurrection of Jesus, I just want to use this morning four that I think satisfy enough criteria to establish them as being historical facts beyond reasonable doubt. And these are my four. That Jesus died by crucifixion. That he was really dead. That Jesus' well-known tomb was discovered empty by a bunch of Jesus' women followers on Easter morning. That the disciples had experiences after the death of Jesus that they claimed were genuine resurrection, resurrection appearances of Jesus. And number four, that Saul of Tarsus, you may know him as Paul the Apostle, that Saul was converted to believe in Jesus through what he claimed was a resurrection appearance of Jesus. Now, the reason why these four things are classed as minimal facts is because they satisfy an incredibly tall bar of evidence to be able to be admitted. And they're accepted by the full gamut of scholars in the relevant fields of biblical studies, ancient history, and sort of the first century world. It doesn't matter whether they're atheistic scholars, skeptical scholars from other religions, they all tend to agree on these facts, at least upwards of 90% of them do, irrespective of their religious persuasion. That's an incredible kind of consensus. And as someone of a, perhaps the foremost expert in this area, there's a scholar by the name of Gary Habermas, and over his life, from 1975 onwards, he has taken account of every single scholarly article or manuscript or book that's been written in this field, some now over 2,500 publications, and has kept track of what their positions were. And he can affirm that over 90% of people agree on these four facts. Now, what actually makes for a good historical fact? What kind of criteria do these critical historians use? Well, here's some of the, the criteria that something has to be able to satisfy to pass. They want to look for historical claims are strong when they're supported by eyewitness testimony, when they're supported by early testimony, testimony that's closer to the event so that there's less time for legendary developments. They want to be supported by multiple independent sources, that it's not just coming from one person in one place or even four people, but their stories are all exactly identical as though they've gotten to a room and colluded on the details. But just like witnesses in a law court, they all come from different perspectives and hone in on different details and yet completely agree on the major core of what's there. Also, they're looking for enemy sources. Is there anyone that doesn't want this event to have happened the way that it did, but still willingly testifies the fact that, yes, this is actually what happened, because they're not already bought in. Uh, they don't want it to be true, and yet they still establish its historicity. And they want to look for sources that are riddled with embarrassing admissions. The kind of thing that if you're making up a legendary story or a myth, or you're trying to convince someone that something's true, there would be certain details that you would purposefully leave out because they actually harm your story. They're a hindrance to it being believable. And in light of these criteria, perhaps one of the most important pieces of available evidence that comes to us is in the form of an early Christian creed, a belief statement, which you can find in the New Testament incorporated into a letter called 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And in there, the Apostle Paul, he claims to have received this gospel as of first importance through tradition. And then either in Damascus at his conversion or in Jerusalem three years later when he went up to speak with the other apostles, this is where he seems to have received this tradition. 
and scholars of every stripe, and I mean this, even the most skeptical atheistic scholars, people like Gerd Ludmann and the Radical Jesus Seminar, they date this creed, this statement that he incorporates into a letter, to between two and five years after the supposed resurrection of Jesus. This is what the Christian church, what the early Christians always were claiming about what happened. It's an incredibly early window into the beliefs of the early church. And as I read it here, you'll actually notice in summary form our minimal facts that I read before, along with several other kind of second-tier facts that are also incredibly helpful that come to us from the Gospels. I'll read it here. Paul said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 believers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me." Now, I want to elaborate, given the criteria and these claims, why it is that scholars of every stripe are willing to at least sign up to these minimal facts as being an accurate representation of history. Fact number one, that Jesus of Nazareth died by crucifixion under the sentence of Pontius Pilate. Now, not only is the death of Jesus briefly recorded here in Paul's early creed, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, satisfying the idea of early testimony, But Paul actually includes this claim in most of his undisputed epistles in the New Testament. He says it everywhere. And it's the unanimous testimony of all four of the canonical Gospels, which together serve as multiple independent sources. And in addition to the Christian sources that we have, both in and outside the Bible, there are no less than 12 ancient Jewish, Roman, and Greek sources within the first 150 years from this event. Sources that serve as unsympathetic, even hostile witnesses that claim that Jesus died by crucifixion under the sentence of Pontius Pilate. Now, a crucified Messiah, a dead God, was a stumbling block to Jews. And it's a foolish idea for pagans, who as is demonstrated on the right up here by the famous Alexamenos painting, one of the most early forms of uh, of, um, graffiti in the ancient world. Christians were being mocked for this belief, for believing in a crucified God. And in light of this, no early Christian would invent the embarrassing claim that Jesus died by crucifixion. And moreover, given our modern medical examination, our understanding of the entire process of crucifixion, which is fascinating and terrifying to go and read about, and of our knowledge of ancient Roman customs surrounding crucifixion, the claim that Jesus survived the executioner and merely went on to revive himself in the tomb is highly improbable. And as far as ancient history is concerned, we can be as sure about the death of Jesus by crucifixion as we can be about any other ancient fact. Fact number two, Jesus' well-known tomb was discovered empty by a bunch of Jesus' women followers on Easter Sunday. Now, the empty tomb is implied by the language of Jesus being buried and then raised on the third day in Paul's early creed in 1 Corinthians 15. It's also attested across all four canonical gospels. And the historicity of this claim is established really on the embarrassing nature in which it comes to us. Because there is this admission in all four gospels, no one tries to hide it, 
that the first witnesses, both of the empty tomb and of the resurrection of Jesus, were women. Now, were this to be a fabricated story, a legend that was made up, you would not invent women being the discoverers of the empty tomb. Because in the ancient world, there was no suffragette movement. There was no women's rights. There was no sense of equality and dignity between the sexes. It was an incredibly sexist culture at the time. Josephus, a Jewish historian, writes a generation after Jesus and records how the testimony of women wasn't even admissible in a Jewish court of law because he considered women's testimony to be given too much to emotion rather than reason. <laughs> That's the kind of statement that gets punched in a face on any kind of modern university campus, and yet all four Gospels record that it is women that discover the empty tomb, women that receive the first witness of the angel proclaiming, he is not dead, he is risen. It is women, Mary of Magdalene, uh, who uh, receives the first resurrection image of Jesus in the garden tomb on Easter Sunday morning. It is an incredible admission that it works against the credibility of the claim in the ancient world, but is also an incredible way in which God restores the dignity and equality of all people, men and women, being made in the image of God. Christians weren't afraid to have this as part of their story because they're restoring this biblical vision that God gives of a complementarity between men and women, but an absolute equality in value and dignity and worth. And it's beautiful, but it works against the credibility of this fact. You wouldn't invent it if it was a fable. Fact number three that very soon after Jesus' death, the disciples had experiences that they believed were genuine appearances of the resurrected Jesus. That Jesus appeared to the disciples is again attested in Paul's early creed in 1 Corinthians 15. It's in three of the four canonical gospels, if you don't include the long ending of Mark, which serve as multiple independent eyewitness sources. And rather than merely just being one sole appearance, one particular event, it actually records a litany of experiences of Jesus appearing to men and women and individuals and groups over a period of 40 days in different social situations and geographical locations to which all of the Gospels attest. In fact, the invitation of Paul here in AD 55, some 20 or so years after the supposed resurrection of Jesus, was that so many of these 500 eyewitnesses are still alive. If you doubt what we're saying, go and interview them. You can find out for yourself what happens. Now, moreover, this pattern, the Jerusalem and Galilee and Jerusalem pattern of these appearances, it actually matches really well with the expected pilgrimages of the disciples, being in Jerusalem first for Passover and then going home and doing fishing and then coming back again for Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, a little bit later. However, even more convincing than the resurrection appearances, the stories that they tell, is the effect that it visibly had on these disciples. Because it didn't just transform them from being cowards, fleeing after the death of Jesus, then into martyrs willing to die, as no less than 11 ancient sources chronicle. But it also causes an incredible evolution in what was the understood Orthodox Jewish beliefs of the time. Historian of Christian origins, a guy named Rodney Stark, he remarks that an effect as powerful as the Christian movement, it actually leaves a resurrection-shaped hole. And the famed British scholar N.T. Wright, in his magisterial work on the resurrection, which can serve as the foundation for a building if you don't want to read it as a book, it's that big. Uh, in there, he chronicles these six major changes in belief from Judaism to Christianity that only make sense in light of the disciples' genuine belief in Jesus' 
bodily resurrection. For these reasons, we can be confident that the disciples had experiences that they at least genuinely believed were resurrection appearances of Jesus. And fact number four, just a few years after Jesus' death, Saul of Tarsus, a sworn enemy of the church, a persecutor of Christians, was converted to believe in Jesus through what he claims multiple times to have been a resurrection appearance of Jesus. Now, the Apostle Paul, behind Jesus himself, has exhibited the single greatest influence on the Christian church, on the beliefs of Christianity. But before his conversion to Christianity, he was throwing Christians in prison. He believed the claim that Jesus was God in the flesh, died and risen again, was blasphemy of the worst order and was gaining permission to go around the Roman Empire to different Jewish settlements to have people found out, to out the Christians and to throw them in prison and confiscate their property. But we have to ask the question, how did this persecutor of Christians, this enemy of the church, get catapulted to being the greatest missionary and church planter that the church has ever seen. And Paul's own autobiographical comments throughout his letters in the New Testament, as well as in the book of Acts, his narrative statements, these three formal apologies that he gives, his explanation of his conversion, they serve as independent multiple attestation to the fact that it was encountering Jesus, risen from the dead on the Damascus road, that transformed him and made him revise his beliefs. In Paul's early Christian creed here in 1 Corinthians 15, he describes himself, because of the time lapse between Jesus' original resurrection appearances to the disciples and then his own experience of Jesus as being one untimely born. And for all of these reasons, virtually no scholars alive today in the relative fields actually doubt that Paul genuinely believed that he encountered the resurrected Jesus to explain that transformation. So we have these four facts that can be established as historically certain beyond reasonable doubt. But how then do we explain them? Because surely there's a bunch of ways that we could come up with to be able to say, well, it's not just the resurrection. I can explain that in many ways. And people have tried throughout history. Let's go through some of the alternative explanations. One of the most popular has been this idea of the swoon theory. Now, the swoon theory is helpful because it can explain the empty tomb, that Jesus was crucified, but he didn't really die. He simply revived in the cold tomb and somehow escaped the tomb and then convinced his disciples, bloody and half dead and pulverized, that he was the resurrected Lord of glory. Uh, but, but let's just say that, you know, at least it explains the empty tomb. How did the tomb of Jesus become empty? But it doesn't fit what we know of Jesus' experience of torture. If you go and read the medical journals, if you go and read the Roman customs around execution, that the executioner would himself be killed if he didn't actually complete his job right, which is why they often broke the legs of people to speed up the process so you would suffocate quicker. It just doesn't fit the evidence that we have of what happened. It doesn't explain how Jesus got out. The stories record that a two-ton stone was rolled into place and a Roman guard was set up to guard it so that none of Jesus' disciples could steal the body and this entire Christian movement would be destroyed. And it certainly doesn't explain how Jesus was able to convince his followers that he had beaten death, that now death was not an enemy of which they needed to be afraid, and certainly doesn't explain the, cruci- uh, the, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. 
But what about a second theory? Maybe the twin theory. This has been a, another popular one, particularly in a couple of modern novels. And the idea of the twin theory is that Jesus had a twin brother. No one knew about him. And when it came time to the crucifixion, the twin brother was the one that was put up on the cross and Jesus was hiding in the background. And then after a few days, Jesus just turned up and had given himself some scars that looked like the right crucifixion marks and tried to convince everyone, hey, I'm dead, but now I'm risen again. And it's this sort of incredible story. Now, this one might explain the death of Jesus, our first fact, but there's a ton of things that it can't explain. It can't explain things like the conversion of Jesus' family, some of whom were counted amongst the leaders of the early church, people like James, who wrote a book of the Bible, and Jude, who wrote a book of the Bible, people that certainly didn't believe in Jesus during his ministry, but came to believe after Jesus' resurrection from the dead. It also doesn't explain why Jesus' mother, Mary, would be a really prominent figure in the early church and would go on to believe that her son was Lord God, Savior, and Christ, given that I'm pretty sure as the one who birthed him, she would know whether there was one or two of them. It also can't explain that Jesus had the crucifixion scars healed in his hands and his body. It can't explain the miraculous nature of the resurrection appearances, Jesus appearing in a locked room and able to move in incredible ways uh, that they all describe. And it certainly, again, doesn't explain the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And where did Jesus disappear to afterwards? What about explanation number three, the hallucination theory? This is a very popular one even among skeptical scholars today. And this one might be able to explain some of the resurrection appearances of Jesus. Uh, let's say there was a mass marijuana plantation burning off in the background. But there are some significant problems with this theory as well. It can't explain the empty tomb of Jesus how the tomb was discovered empty. There would still be a body if these are just hallucination experiences. And all the leaders of the Jews to have to quash the Christian movement, which was preached first in Jerusalem, would have to do is point to the tomb, bring out the body. He's not risen. He's dead, rotting. Here he is. It also doesn't explain the very nature of hallucinations in and of themselves. Hallucinations are mental events. They're private events. They're not shared in the same way. So the whole marijuana plantation doesn't really even help. Jesus is described in these as actually eating and drinking, leaving a physical impact behind. And again, it doesn't explain the conversion of Saul, who well after had very similar kind of encounter and is in no way predisposed to believe in Jesus through that sort of an encounter. So what about explanation number four, the idea of the wrong tomb theory? Well, the women on Easter, they just got confused that means the ancient world, women get confused, right? Apparently, according to Josephus, and they're full of grief, and someone's Sunday, they just went to the wrong tomb. Well, that might be able to discover why they found one tomb empty, but again, there's so much that this view can't explain. It can't explain how they got it wrong. Joseph of Arimathea's tomb was incredibly well guarded, and just in case you're confused, there was a Roman sentry posted to guard it. I doubt that was true of a random tomb in the middle of nowhere. It's also true, again, that the Christian message was preached in Jerusalem just weeks after the supposed death and resurrection of Jesus. Again, if there was really a tomb that was still with Jesus' body in it, all the leaders of the Jewish and Roman authorities had to do to stop this movement before it even got going was to go to the tomb. You got it wrong. Here it is. Here's his body. It's not that difficult. It also doesn't explain those post-mortem appearances to all of the disciples, the conversion of Saul, or the early Jewish polemics we actually find in the Gospels where they don't say they went to the wrong tomb. The early Jewish polemics, their arguments against the resurrection, actually include the fact that the tomb was empty. They agree that the tomb was empty, but they just claim that the disciples stole 
Jesus' body. Which leads us then to explanation number five, the stolen body theory. Now, this one explains maybe why there is an empty tomb, but it maybe can explain a little bit about the change that the disciples were fibbing it, you know, that they're just making up a religion to try and get rich and famous. But there's a bunch of things that this can't explain. The first would be the overpowered Roman guard. We're talking about unskilled fishermen overpowering a century of trained warriors who were the Roman war machine that dominated the ancient world. It also doesn't explain why the disciples, the followers of Jesus, would be motivated to lie. What on earth do they have to gain about making up this story about a dead and rising Messiah, that Jesus was really God? Because all it gained them in their entire earthly existence was opposition. These were the guys you would describe as being the most opposed in the ancient world. They went from city to city, acting as homeless missionaries, sharing the stories about Jesus, and they were beaten, and they were crucified, and they were sawn in half, and they didn't get rich and famous. It was a life of incredible self-sacrifice. And if they're wrong about their claim, then according to their Jewish beliefs, they're actually condemning their eternity. Because to claim that Jesus was God was to commit blasphemy and a terrible offense against the dignity of God. And so not only do they gain nothing in this life, but they gain nothing in the hereafter. And we have, from historical evidence, no glimpse of any of these guys who knew whether what they were saying was true or false, whether they stole the body or didn't. No evidence of any of them recanting. But when they faced persecution and death, willingly did so in the belief that Jesus would rise from the dead, unafraid of what they would see afterwards. They had nothing to gain. It just doesn't explain the evidence we have on hand. An explanation number six, and this is probably the most famous of the last 20 or 30 years, the legendary theory. And this is the idea that actually the stories of Jesus' resurrection, they're just all made up, that none of it is true. That Jesus may or may not even be a historical figure, but all of this has just become a big game of Chinese whispers over the 30 or so years after the resurrection of Jesus, and none of it was originally part of what Christians believed, but they can't account for the early creed, two to five years here in 1 Corinthians 15. This is what they believed and preached from the very beginning, that Christ died, that he was buried, that he was raised, that he appeared, that death no longer is our final enemy. Uh, The fact that the disciples, those who were actually there for the events, they're all around when the gospel stories are still being written and sent around. They act as custodians over the content. It can't account for the transformation of the disciples. Who were these random, ragtag bunch of guys who went from being cowards and fishermen to being this incredible missionary movement, convinced of the truth of the gospel claim, starting churches all around the world? It doesn't make sense of the spread of the Christian movement. In fact, It doesn't speak to any of our known historical facts. And this is why the famed historical and yet fictional detective Sherlock Holmes, he comes to this very astute conclusion when he has this famous line, that once you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. You see, these naturalistic hypotheses, the alternative explanations of the historical data, none of them account for what we actually see. The best explanation that we have is the explanation that we see given from the very moment after Jesus' resurrection from the dead. It's what Jesus predicted. It's what the apostles preached. It's what the church has always believed, that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead bodily. 
And in view of the weight of this evidence, someone like Anthony Flew, the Richard Dawkins of a previous generation, when looking at the historical evidence, this is what he concluded. He said that the evidence for the resurrection is better than for any claimed miracle in any other religion. It's outstandingly different in quality and quantity. But why does all this matter? <laughs> what difference does this really make? Because according to recent research here in Australia, apparently 21% of Aussies already believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And another 26% are pretty open to that possibility. It's a live option for belief for a ton of Australian people. But unless you have the context, the broader understanding of the Christian story, it's hard to see how Jesus rising from the dead is actually an announcement of good news. And this, for me, is actually one of the most precious truths for all of reality. Because in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul goes on to say this. He said that if Christ is not raised from the dead, then our faith is futile. It's a waste of time. You're still in your sins. Jesus' death, it was just an execution. That those who have fallen asleep in Christ, those who have already died believing that Jesus would one day resurrect them, that they would have eternal life. Well, they died with false hope. They're gone. They're fertilizer. And he says that if only in this life we have this hope, this pie in the sky that we die, that there'll be a resurrection, then actually, Christians, you're a pitiful lot because it's just false hope. But if it's true, as the facts of history seem to bear out, then the converse of all of those is true. Our faith is not futile. Jesus' death wasn't just a Roman execution. It was actually divine atonement of God paying the penalty for our sins, as Jesus claimed. And it also means that those who have fallen asleep in Christ, those who have died believing in Jesus, they're not gone. They're not fertilizer. Their bodies have been planted, but one day that seed will burst forth with a new body to live with God for all eternity. And it means that for every person here who believes in Jesus, your life is fueled not by a false hope, but by a sure reality. Not a blind leap in the dark, but a leap into the light, following the evidence, the trail that God has left to bring us to belief in himself. And if this is true, then this isn't just a good idea. It's not one option amongst many. This is good news. It's an historical announcement of God's desire, of his love for you of his mission to bring you back into relationship with himself, of the offer of forgiveness for our sin, the invitation to come, repent, trust in, and follow Jesus, and to step into the purpose, the life for which you've always been made. And the question that Jesus asks you is, do you believe it? Do you believe it? Not on blind faith, but on the evidence that he presents for us. And what will you do with it? Because you can't just remain undecided or indifferent to this kind of world-shattering claim. It's a life-altering moment. Either death is a comma or a full stop. And my belief is that Jesus comes to every single person when they hear the message of the gospel, when they hear the evidence for the resurrection, in the exact same way that he came to Mary on Easter Sunday morning when she was weeping in the garden at the empty tomb, wondering who stole Jesus' body. And he comes to her and he calls her by name. Mary. And this is the same personal way that God reveals himself to each one of us. He comes and he calls you by name. What are you going to do with that invitation? Would you bow your heads with me? I'd love to pray. And maybe you're here this morning and for the first time, 
some of this is starting to make sense and this is more than just an idea and and the invitation of Jesus is something you want to respond to, then in the quietness of your own heart, feel free just to pray along with me. Heavenly Father, I want to praise you that you don't ask us to step into the dark, to believe on blind faith, but that you ask us to step into the light and follow the trail of evidence and that it leads to the feet of the cross. I thank you that you died. Jesus, the Son of God, Thank you that you bore our sin, you bore our shame. Thank you that you displayed your incredible love for us, being willing to absorb that on our behalf, to face judgment so that we could go free, to die so that we could be granted eternal life. And God, I thank you that you have made this so clear, not just in the scriptures as windows into history, but the entire record, that it's borne out by the facts that our faith rests on a sure anchor, and that we can have confidence to go and share this, knowing it's true news and good news, not just blind, false hope, but it's real hope. And that the resurrection of Jesus breathes hope into the lungs of a weary and hopeless world. And so God, would you speak and call everyone here by name? Would you invite them to trust in Jesus? And would you lead believers to rejoice in the salvation and the hope that we have in the resurrection, to know that those who have fallen asleep in Christ, those who have lost, they're not gone. They're in your presence. And one day they'll sprout forth that your resurrection was just the first fruits, the beginning of the story, the first. There's gonna be a ton more. And we look forward to that day where all evil will come to an end. God, as we stand to praise you, to hear from you, to worship you, let it be an overflow of that truth. Let our hearts rejoice in it afresh. Let it not become something that's just an idea in the back of our mind, but something that animates all that we are and give us a passion to go and share it with the world. That they do can know God, know Him through Jesus, find forgiveness, rebirth, purpose, direction, and hope, all in the gospel of Jesus. For your name's sake, God, and for their good, we pray this in Jesus' name.